Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing our series today in the Sermon on the Mount, and, um, and, and honestly, our, our topic brings us to a, a point that really, really hits home um, and honestly hits hard for a lot of people. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. As we continue this series through the Sermon on the Mount, um, we're, we're doing so verse by verse, all the way through, kind of topic by topic. And today's passage brings us to, um, to a, a topic that really, really, um, if I could be honest with you, I've labored over this week. Lord, I want to get this right. According to your word, I want to make sure I get this right. And so as I preach here, if you want to drop a prayer every now and then for the Holy Spirit to give me wisdom, I wouldn't complain any. If you could do that, I'd really appreciate it. I'm, um, I'm currently working on, uh, a slowly working on a, another master's degree from um, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's a master's in theology, and it just so happens that this week, as I work through my class in ethics, it's an ethics class, this week uh, the whole topic was marriage and divorce. And then I'm coming to today, and it's just natural flow that the topic is marriage and divorce. And so it's like I've been immersed in this all week long. Um, my marriage ought to be really, really good after that, right? <laughs> Here's part of what I learned this week about the history of divorce just here in the United States, okay? And uh, may, some of you may remember this, but in 1969, California becomes the first state to enact no-fault divorce. Um, up until this point, Divorce was only allowed in extreme cases in the United States, but after this case in California, one after the other, states started passing this no-fault divorce legislation. Now, because of this, there was an, an explosion of divorce all throughout the, the 70s and the 80s. In fact, about half of all marriages ended in divorce in that time period. It's now estimated that about 41% of marriages in our country end in divorce. So still very much a major issue for us. The last clear, very reputable research that I could find about evangelical divorce rate comes from 2008. And at that time, 33% of born-again Christian marriages ended in divorce. 33%. Now, the, other, the other number there is 41%. So very, very close to the national average. Divorce is a major component of our, of our culture. It's a, it's a major component of the church at large. Um, the effects of divorce are devastating. My mom and dad were divorced when I was really young. And the repercussions of that are lifelong and they're far-reaching. Now, I'll tell you, and I'll be the first to tell you, that there is a ton of grace in that I've seen the Lord walk with our family through that over the years. And he has never, ever ceased to be faithful. But still, almost 30 years later, there is, um, there's a lot of repercussions of that divorce that still affect me and even my kids, my family. There's a poem, and we don't know the author of the poem, but whoever wrote it, it does a really good job of communicating the perspective of a little girl whose parents are experiencing a divorce. And um, the, the poem itself is called The Monster. She says, the monster's here, the monster's there, the monster is everywhere. 
in my milk, in my tea, doesn't it ever think of me? Mom's here, dad's there, and I'm just not anywhere. How can I say this without any force? The monster is called divorce. If you've ever experienced divorce, um, whether you personally or your family, maybe your parents, you know that it really is a monster. And one of the things that we're going to find today is that God hates divorce for a variety of reasons. He hates it. And because God hates it, I hope, I hope that we have a hatred for it as well. But I want you to hear me. Um, I know without a doubt that I am speaking to a whole lot of people here in our church who have, for one reason or another, been divorced. And you are not any less a child of God than a person who has never experienced divorce. You're not any less loved by God than a person who has never experienced it before. The grace and mercy that God offers one person is no different than the grace and mercy that God offers another person. We all sin. We all are in need of God's grace and his mercy. For some people, the, the sin is one thing. For another person, it's something else. We're going to find as we work through this, though, the grace of God is endless. We're going to talk about that as we wrap up here in just a few moments. Now, I come to this, and I don't skip over it, um, even though I may want to, for the very specific reason that it is important for us to preach the whole counsel of God and to take the whole word of God and seek to understand it and let it, let it challenge us and apply to our lives so that we know what it looks like to live in a godly way in a godless culture. All right, so that's why we don't skip over when we get to, to, um, to a topic such as this. Now, I want to I start this morning by talking about God's plan for marriage. What is God's plan for marriage? And just if I put it very, very simply, it's man and woman as long as they live, okay? God's plan for marriage is man and woman as long as they live. And if you're following along in the handout, you want to fill in the blanks as we go through here, there's your first fill-in-the-blank notes. Now, while I introduce this, this point, I want you to take your Bibles. You're in Matthew chapter 5 now. I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 19, okay? I'll get there here in just a moment. But if we go back to the very beginning of the Bible, God creates man and woman. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God says, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, this helper is a spouse who is to be joined together with the man for the rest of their lives. Okay? They are together emotionally, uh, physically, spiritually, mentally. They're together for companionship in all facets of life. In the words of Tom Cruise in the movie Jerry Maguire, the man tells the woman, you complete me. Okay. Cheesiest line in any movie ever. And I'm not advocating for going to see Jerry Maguire because it's not even a good movie anyway. They could have done a lot better with it. Anyway. A few verses later, Genesis chapter 2, we read these words. Therefore, so because God has created the man and woman, um, therefore, as a part of God's intention, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in the eyes of God, when a man who's an individual and a woman who's an individual come together, they're joined together in marriage, they are one unit. Their lives are forever intertwined. They're no longer two individual people. They are one and one only. 
So we get to Matthew chapter 19, and Jesus is asked about marriage and divorce. And here's what we find, starting in verse 3. Matthew 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them, talking about man and woman, from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. All right, well, this answer is not good enough for him. So they say to him this. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So from the very beginning of creation, marriage is something that is sacred. It's not supposed to be broken. Now in that passage, in that passage right there in Matthew chapter 19, we see two overarching ideas that really let us know the heart of God in this, okay? It, it can be summed up in two words. Number one, intimacy. Number two, permanence. And maybe you want to write those words there somewhere where you can remember them, okay? God's intention, intimacy, and permanence. The married couple is one flesh. The intimacy of a marriage relationship is like none other. You can try to replicate intimacy outside of the marriage relationship, but that attempted replication is going to be nothing short of fake. It's going to leave you empty over and over and over again because it's not as God designed for it to be. The permanence of marriage is also seen here. So when God joins them together, the two individuals, when God joins them together, they are together forever. So then we get to our passage for today, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is uh, preaching here. He's teaching his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to, once, once again, let me paint this picture for us. Jesus is teaching. He gathers his disciples up close, and he's teaching his disciples. But there's a whole bunch of people who are observing what Jesus is teaching his disciples. And here's what he teaches. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So before Jesus, that was what was taught. But then Jesus follows this up with some radical new teaching. He says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So let's talk about divorce here for a few moments. And I've got several main points that I want for us to look at. First of all, what are the biblical grounds for divorce? What are the biblical grounds for divorce? Now, when we look at this, it's really important for us to understand the context of everything that's happening in Jewish law and in Jewish culture at this time of Jesus, all right? Um, just like with the other issues that we have talked about up to this point, we talked about the, the fulfilling of the law, the anger, the lust. As we talked about these things, the Jews have taken the intention of God's law, and they've turned it into something different than God designed for it to be. Deuteronomy chapter 24, way back in Moses' day, when, when instruction about divorce is given, it's given with the understanding that divorce was a last resort option. A last resort option. However, you get to Jesus' day, and it's been turned into something completely different. 
It's no longer a last resort option. In Jesus' day, a man could divorce his wife for virtually any perceived act of uncleanness. I'm going to ask a question here. I could get in trouble for this question, okay? By show of hands, now I'm really going to get in trouble. How many men in here have at any point eaten food that your wife brought to you that was well, well done? I won't say which newlywed couple sitting back here, but one of the man's already going, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I won't say which one it was. <clears throat> Did you know that if you lived in Jesus' day, you could divorce your wife because she fed you burnt food? Or if the man just thought, he didn't have to see, didn't have to be any witnesses, but if he just thought that his wife was walking down the street with her, her head uncovered and she looked at a man, then he could divorce her. No proof, no witnesses. Boom, divorce. It didn't take much at all, and justification was given for divorce. Because if, if, if something was, if it was perceived as unclean, then justification was given. So you really think about it, it's not a whole lot different from the day in which we live, in which there is no fault divorce. So what does Jesus do? He calls his disciples back to a standard that reflects the heart of God when it comes to marriage. Everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. It's a pretty strong language there. So the command is to not divorce, but Jesus includes an exception clause except on the ground of sexual immorality. Except on the grounds of sexual immorality. So the uncleanness that we talked about just a moment ago is not just anything that can be perceived as unclean. Jesus gets really, really specific here with sexual immorality. The whole understanding, the whole teaching on divorce rests on that interpretation of this phrase, except on the ground of sexual immorality. We've got to get this right to understand God's heart on the matter. The Greek word here is the word porneia, okay? It means unchastity, fornication, prostitution, any kind of defilement of God's intention for morality. So when this word is applied to married persons, it refers to any kind of marital, moral unfaithfulness. So when Jesus uses this really strong language about divorce and the grounds for it, he's being a whole lot more strict than the Jewish culture is. But he's allowing for divorce if the spouse is guilty of marital unfaithfulness. However, if you divorce for any other reason and you remarry, then it is you who commits adultery. So when it comes down to it, Jesus' teaching, honestly, is really, really clear. Now, here's one other factor for us to think about as we think about the biblical grounds for divorce. Um, for sake of time, you don't have to turn here, but 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 16 is where Paul is giving instructions to the Corinthian church about marriage and about divorce. And specifically here, he gives instruction about a man and woman who are in a marriage in which one is a believer and the other is not. So you have a believer and an unbeliever married together. What we find there is that if the unbeliever leaves the believer, then the believer is free to remarry. In all of the New Testament, these are the only two allowances for divorce. 
sexual immorality and abandonment of a believer by an unbeliever. Now, before I go to the next point, I want to mention something that's really not clearly outlined for us, but comes up often in our culture. What about abuse? What about what's supposed to happen when abuse has taken place in the marital relationship? There is nowhere that clearly tells us how to respond in God's word. So is an abused person supposed to just stay in the relationship and continue to be abused because the Bible is so clear that divorce is only for the, for the allowed in cases of sexual immorality and abandonment? I want to tell you how I've counseled a couple of people when this has come up. I tell people, never stay in a position where harm can come to you at the hand of your spouse. Get out. By getting out, you are not automatically filing for divorce or even fully heading for divorce. You're separating yourself from the dangerous situation to seek help that, get this, might help restore your relationship. Separation is sometimes necessary to ensure your safety or the safety of your family members. I cannot see any way in which God would condemn a person for separating themselves from their spouse in this case of abuse. Especially when the person separating is doing so with a heart that is pursuing restoration. Sometimes separation is exactly what's needed in order for repentance and for restoration to take place. I want to make a couple of points here about divorce that, 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 that support what we've talked about so far, okay? First of all, please understand, divorce is allowed, but it is never commanded in God's Word. Divorce is allowed, but it is never commanded. There is not a single time in the entire Bible in which divorce is instructed or it's commanded. Never. God does not make divorce an imperative. Be careful of anybody who says to you, God told me to get a divorce. Well, he doesn't say so in his word. God may permit it according to his word, but he never commands us to get a, a divorce. And here's why. I think that it is because God's heart is bent towards reconciliation. I believe that it's God's heart that is bent towards reconciliation. And we see this in the way that he really, honestly, in the way that he treats all of us. From the time that Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, God has been seeking reconciliation with us. Now, for a few moments ago, I referenced 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's one thing that we find there. Paul says, to the married, I give this charge. Not I, Paul says, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. There's that language. The whole thrust of this, of this passage is that be reconciled, be reconciled. The husband should not divorce his wife. The last divorce, the last resort, excuse me, is divorce. We haven't even gotten this morning, for sake of time, we haven't gotten into how an earthly Christian marriage is a picture of Jesus and his bride, the church. That's what marriage is. How much did Jesus love us as his bride? He gave himself for us. He died for us. He gave it all for us. 
That's the kind of tenacity that we should show in seeking reconciliation in our marriages. We should be willing to die for the other person no matter what they've done to us. Here's the next thing I want for us to, to bring up, and that is that rare exception, divorce is a rare exception and not the rule. It should be a rare exception and not the rule, especially in the community of faith. The world is going to be the world. There is no reason to expect otherwise. There's no moral compass to expect the world to hold to. Oh, but listen, there is for the Christian. There is that moral compass. There is that expectation for the Christian. If you are a Christian, then you are held to a different standard. Your life is to reflect the great change that has taken place inside of you. You're supposed to be different. Our marriages are supposed to be different. When 33% of evangelical Christian marriages end in divorce, I would say that we're not being a whole lot different from the world. And when Jesus said this about divorce in the Sermon on the Mount, he's calling for his disciples to take on a radical new view on divorce. You think about the cultural context of the day, okay? He's saying this. He's saying, I want you to think about this completely differently than culture does. I want you to, to view your marriage completely differently than culture does. Culture thinks that a marriage can be dissolved for virtually no reason, but I am telling you that it is precious and it is to be treated as precious. Divorce is the rare exception and not the rule. You say, well, my marriage isn't perfect. <laughs> Newsflash, mine isn't either. We are all imperfect people. Hillary and I were just talking last night as we were driving about how our marriage is in a really good place right now. And, and sometimes you see it do that. You do that, that little bit of a, of a roller coaster, right? If I'm being honest, that, that's our marriage sometimes. A little bit of a roller coaster. We're far from perfect. So our marriage is far from perfect. If you're married, I can pretty much guarantee that your marriage is, is not perfect. If it is, come see me because you're our new church Marriage counselor, all right? Congratulations, you got a new job. But every, every single marriage relationship has got to be fought for. A strong marriage only comes through hard work. What's tomorrow? Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. It's a day set apart for love and for communicating how much we love another person. I really hope that you don't limit fighting for your marriage to special days like Valentine's Day or birthdays or anniversaries or Christmas or whatever it is. A marriage has got to be fought for all the time. Did you know that as a Christian, Satan is gunning for your marriage? He wants it. He wants it badly because he knows that if he can ruin your marriage, that the years-long repercussions will give him victory after victory after victory. Now, as I said before, I know that I'm speaking to a really diverse crowd here today when it comes to divorce, and, and it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're divorced or affected by it or you're not at all. This next point is for all of us. Grace and forgiveness is freely available. 
Grace and forgiveness is freely available. Two weeks ago when we were together in Matthew chapter 5 here, we weren't together, we were, we were elsewhere with uh, Home Anniversary Sunday last Sunday. But two weeks ago when we were talking about lust and we were talking about adultery, one of the things that we found is that Jesus has almost an impossible standard of, of purity. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, if that's the case, just based on my marriage, I'm not going to make it. But the beautiful thing about our God is that he never, ever ceases to be good and kind and merciful and gracious and forgiving. Now listen, he is a God of justice. And so when we do sin, our sin is going to find us out. And if you remember the story of David, one of the things we talked about a couple of weeks ago is that even though David repented, the repercussions for his sin were devastating. Oh, but our God is a God of forgiveness. And we can run to him when we have sinned. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching on this topic one time when he said this. He says, have you nothing to say about others? Ask someone. And let me pause there to tell you the context, okay? In the context, the others that he's talking about there, he's talking about those who have sinned through divorce, so unbiblical divorce, and consequently adultery. That's the context of this, of this comment he makes. He continues, all I would say about them is this, and I say it carefully and advisedly and almost in fear, lest I give even a semblance of a suggestion that I am saying anything that may encourage anyone to sin. But on the basis of the gospel and in the interest of truth, I am compelled to say this. Even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It is a terrible sin, but God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside the love of God or outside his kingdom because of adultery. No! If you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast, cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven and I assure you of pardon. But hear the words of our blessed Lord, go and sin no more. Oh man, that phrase from Jesus, go and sin no more. Yes, you have messed up. Yes, you have sinned. Yes, you've been flat out wrong in the eyes of God and in the eyes of man as well. Repent. Throw yourself upon the mercy and grace of our God and go and sin no more. So church, as we come together this, this morning, if you're here and that's been you in the past where there has been sin, marital sin, then repent and go and sin no more. If your life has been shattered by divorce, whether it's you going through it or you're, you're a child or a grandchild, whatever it is, and you're struggling with the repercussions of that, listen to me, God is there. He always has been and he always will be. Psalm 147 verse three, what does he do? He heals the brokenhearted. And he binds up their wounds. So if you're here and your marriage is struggling, to echo what I said a couple of moments ago, fight for that marriage. I want to close with a very short, simple challenge for our church. I want to summarize what I believe to be a very simple yet all-important response for our church today. Four things. Number one, we got to take a stand against no-fault divorce. 
we got to take a stand against it. Marriage is precious to God. It should be precious to us. Number two, we've got to fight judgmentalism. You say, is that a word? I don't know. It is now. Jesus showed us already that we, that to, to, to look at, in our passage a couple weeks ago, to look at a person with lustful intent is the same as committing the sin. We're, we're all guilty. We're all guilty of sin. Move past the judgment. Quit judging your brothers and sisters in Christ, especially when they've repented and moved on. Number three, just like Jesus, we must be forgiving. We must be forgiving. When Jesus looked at that woman who had been accused of adultery, he looks at her. He says, where's your accusers? They're all gone. And then he says, I find no fault in you either. That's where he said, go and sin no more. And church, just like Jesus, we can forgive other people. We should forgive other people. There's a variety of contexts that applies to, but we must be forgiving. Number four, we must share the suffering of those affected by divorce. Divorce is devastating to individuals. And when they go through it, to have a brother or sister in Christ come alongside them and put an arm around them and say, hey, I want to walk with you through this. I love you. I care about you. That's the attitude we should have as a church. Share in the suffering of others. Church, let's be the hands and feet of Jesus when it comes to this. Okay? Father, I thank you for your clarity in your word. And this is a tough topic because it affects so many people. But Father, at the same time, how liberating it is to know that you do give clear instruction. And then Father, when, when marital sin has taken place, you are there with mercy, with grace, with forgiveness. And Father, the words of Jesus in his words to the woman, go and sin no more. Lord, that can be applied to all of us. We are all guilty in one way or another. Father, would you strengthen our marriages? Father, would you hold us up and surround us with people who can walk with us through life and Lord, when we are maybe going through a difficult time, Lord, for people to put their arms around us and say, I will walk with you because I love you. Help us to be the hands and feet of Jesus as a church. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.